Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, and we're going to read verses 6 through 13 today. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. And now these things happen as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape, so that you will be able to endure it. Let's ask God for help. Father, we pray that you would help us to embrace the promise and the truth of your word. But in order that we may do that, be our teacher through the Holy Spirit this morning. We plead with you that you would open up and unfold these words unto us. And as that is done, that they would give us light and understanding in the way and the will of our God. And that then we would have the supply of grace to not only believe, but to do all that you have commanded. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you're well aware of, uh, motivation is an extremely complex phenomenon. And the proof of that is that there are multiple ways in which different people respond to motivation. Some people are strange, and they like to be motivated by pressure. And the more pressure that is on them, the better they perform. And so the more people scream and holler at them, uh, the more their senses are quickened, and the more able they are to respond with diligence to the task which is set before them. Other people are not like that. Other people are just the opposite. Uh, They sort of wilt under uh, obvious external pressure, but they thrive. They absolutely thrive under encouragement. And then there are some people who uh, are motivated almost purely by reward. That if it's very clear that there is a positive uh, reward after uh, engaging in particular kinds of activities, uh, then people have sort of a second gear that kicks in and they are able to perform with excellence. Uh, So there's all kinds of ways that uh, motivation works in our life. And the Apostle Paul, it seems here, uh, has some sort of a working understanding of that as well. And you can kind of see that throughout the entire flow of thought through chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, He approaches uh, this enormous obstacle in the church of Corinth and motivates the saints for a number of different ways to take up the uh, exhortation of the challenge that he gives the church, which is that they are to uh, exercise a responsible use of their freedom 
And in this particular passage right here, he approaches this motivating them unto godliness and righteousness from a whole series of different angles. He admonishes and he warns and he promises and he encourages and he preaches Christ and he sets before them examples so that they would not only understand what is being, uh, what they're being challenged to do, but that they would be motivated to do it. And this morning, I'm going to take up that idea of motivating us unto godliness and motivating us to reject temptation. And I want to compress those various kinds of uh, motivational strategies into two categories this morning. The two most dominant categories in the passage. And the first one is admonition. And the second one is encouragement. First of all, Paul admonishes the saints to reject temptation and to live in godliness. And there are two distinct commands in this passage which form the backbone of the admonition to the saints in Corinth. He first of all tells us in verse 6 that through these examples we are to learn not to crave evil things as they did, that is the Israelites in the desert. And then we are admonished in verse 12 when he says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed. That he does not fall. So those two admonitions from the backbone of the passage. And the first one will be illustrated in at least five different ways. But notice here, before we dig into that in verse 6, that the Apostle Paul characterizes the source uh, of his illustrations when he tries to explain uh, what it means for us not to crave evil as they did. You'll see in verse 6 that he says these things happen as examples for us so that they would not crave evil things as they also craved. These things. And that's looking forward now to the illustrations of disobedience that you find in verses, uh, really through the end of verse 6 all the way through verse 10. In other words, what the Apostle Paul does is he appeals to a whole series of examples in the law, that is, within the first five books of the New Testament, and he says, this is how the church there performed, and God has recorded it, that it might be an admonition and instruction to us in order that we would not follow their example, but we would do the opposite, that we would resist temptation and walk in godliness. But what I want us to see here is uh, what he says here, how he characterizes it. He says, these things happen as examples. You'll notice that in verse 11, you have a repetition of that idea. He says, now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. And what these two verses, along with some others in the New Testament, do is they throw us into the middle of a controversy that began to brew within the Reformed churches about a hundred years ago in the Netherlands. And it was really this, uh, in essence, it was an enormous debate that continues today in Reformed churches and denominations and seminaries about how do we understand the Old Testament. And the debate basically uh, uh, went back and forth between two poles. There is an exemplary approach to the Old Testament, how we interpret it, and how we apply it, and how we preach it. And there is the so-called redemptive historical approach. And the reason why I draw this up is because it is sort of a lively debate, and if you haven't been exposed to it, you can probably just check out for the next few minutes here, because it's probably not terribly relevant until I tell you something very important that we learn from this passage about how to deal with Scripture. Uh, But the idea behind this bait was that there were two different schools or two different camps and there was one, the exemplary approach. And they said the way that we understand the Old Testament is just as they say Paul did. Nice way to sort of trump the debate in your side. Say, well, Paul did it like we did it, so it must be right. 
But you see here, what they said was that the primary way we look at the Old Testament, we look at the narratives, we look at the figures there, and what we do is we focus upon the experiences and the actions and the psychological states and the kinds of things that those believers did, and then we either draw positive or negative analogies from them in terms of how we are to apply them. And so if uh, Daniel did a good thing by standing up to the king of Babylon, then we're uh, challenged to dare to be a Daniel. You know, if Joshua fought the battle of Jericho by marching around the walls of the city, we are to march around the walls of the struggles in our life with prayer, and God will cause uh, the walls of temptation to come tumbling down just as they did in Jericho. You see, sort of a one-to-one correspondence between the actions and the things that they did and how they apply to us. The other uh, school of thought, the redemptive historical school of thought, basically said that if we were to understand the Bible in an exemplary fashion, a purely exemplary fashion, uh, what we would find is that we miss the entire substance and center of Scripture, which is Jesus Christ. And they said basically what the exemplary approach is doing is talking about man. When the heart of Scripture and the substance of the message of the Old Testament is Christ. They say the whole point of Scripture is God acting in Jesus Christ to deliver His people for Himself unto salvation. But the exemplary people would look at this passage and they would say, look at verse 6. He says, these things happen as an example for us. There you go. We don't need to really even work at it. Paul treats Old Testament saints and the narratives about their actions in an exemplary fashion. So the question would be this morning, how does this particular passage teach us how we are to deal with the Bible? A very important question for you as you read the Scriptures. How am I to read the Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, with prophets? Do I focus on examples and say, they did this, therefore I must do that? Or do I sort of brush that to the side and say, whether I understand it or not, Christ is there in this passage, and I'm just going to say, this passage is all about Jesus. Now, maybe that's oversimplifying the debate just a little bit, but it's not too far oversimplified. And I want to suggest to you this morning a third way, a Calvinistic way and a Reformed way, and it just so happens that Calvin is able to illustrate it fairly well. As he looks back at these lessons the Apostle Paul draws out for us, he says this, he says, They are a lesson that we may not provoke the anger of God as they did. God in punishing them has set before us in a picture His severity. And he is instructed by their example, we may learn to fear. God has in that people presented a picture for instruction. You'll notice what he does is he has avoided the either or kind of interpretation of the passage and says it's a both and. He said right within the text of scripture, there is this both and. There is something that God is doing and there is something that man is doing. You see, he says that God has so ordered these examples and these narratives in such a way that he is not only acting within them, but the people are acting within them, and he is using all of that as an example or instruction unto us. And so what I'm going to say, to sort of summarize this debate and reduce it down to something that's helpful for you, 
And this is basically a classical Reformed understanding of how to interpret the Bible. And that is that in uh, the Word of God, there's two basic categories. There's law and there's gospel. And that's the primary question that we need to be asking as we approach a particular passage of Scripture. Is it law or is it gospel? They are two distinct categories, and we need to wrestle with the passage to find out what is there. And it's clear in this particular passage that it's law. God has presented these characters within the context of the narrative with their actions and then his, his judgment in response to what they've done as an admonition. It is a warning unto us to say, don't do what they do. Depart from sin and the fear of God. You're not just preaching about man when you do that. You're preaching about God because you're saying that God has eternal and righteous standards and if they are not followed, then judgment comes. That's what Paul does. He looks at those passages and he says, they are written as examples to motivate us not to do what they did. Now, having just sort of brushed lightly over that, because it's important to at least draw attention to it, I want you to notice one other thing here that he says as he moves those passages from Old Testament into the New Covenant. He says in verse 11, These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That is a very important description of us. He says, it's upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And you see, what in the world is the Apostle Paul talking about? Is he talking about the fact that the end is near? And that may be the way it's described and interpreted in some of your study Bibles, but that's not at all what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul is using the typical uh, Jewish and Old Testament reckoning of history, which basically says there are two stages to history. There is the first stage of history, which is characterized by sin after the fall of Adam, and then there is the second stage of history, which culminates with the coming of the Messiah, and with him the kingdom of God with power. That's it. They only saw two stages of history. And the Apostle Paul uses that same framework for understanding history. And he says, it's here. The end of the ages has come. The era of messianic fulfillment and the coming of the kingdom of God is now here. In a very profound sense, we are not looking forward to it anymore. We are in the experience of it. But what the Apostle Paul has done here, and the other Apostles in the New Testament, and even Jesus, is he has said, with that second stage, that coming of the Kingdom of God and Messianic fulfillment, there's two stages. There's the initial stage when Jesus comes, as a suffering servant, to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sin and then he ascends into heaven and he administers his heavenly kingdom from above and then there is the fulfillment or the climactic fulfillment of that when he comes again in power and glory to bring the eternal state but what I want you to understand here in terms of applying these separate passages for our instruction is what Paul says He says, upon you has come the end of the ages. Upon you has come messianic fulfillment. 
Upon you has come the kingdom of God with power. Upon you has come this great privilege to participate in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, that's the staggering thing that he says here in the first few verses of the chapter when he says, I don't want you to be ignorant that the fathers passed under the cloud and the sea and they were baptized in Moses in the cloud and the sea. They ate the same spiritual food. They had the same spiritual drink and they, they drank of the rock which was Christ that followed them and yet their bodies were laid low in the wilderness. What the Apostle Paul says there is that these people had sort of a partial partaking of Christ and His grace and yet they fell. He's warning the church here. Now as he walks through those examples of of the bodies that are laid low and littered across the wilderness, he says, I want you to hear the admonition with this frame of reference. You're not like them in a sense. They had a partial partaking of Christ and His grace. But you, people of God, You live in the era of fulfillment. You live in the time of messianic kingdom of God. Come. You actually partake in the finished work and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, as you hear these temptations, as you hear this admonition to flee these temptations, hear them with the gospel of Jesus Christ ringing in your ears. You see, I told you this passage in a sense is about the Apostle motivating the saints from a whole series of different angles. But what's so important for you to hear this morning, as you hear the admonitions, you are to hear them as those who are obligated to turn away from temptation because of where you stand in redemptive history. You stand in the place at the end of the ages having come upon you, you stand in the place of actually participating in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And His grace, which is mediated through His obedience, His death on the cross. So we hear these now as Christians who have experienced and tasted Christ and His grace. The Apostle says what you need to do is hear these admonitions which flow from their example, which was they craved evil things. And the first admonition to us which is illustrated in five different ways, is you're not supposed to crave evil things. Crave. It's the same word that's often translated the lust after in the New Testament, which is a desire to engage in something that's morally wrong. So the word all by itself would tell you uh, that we're not to do what they did. They craved things, and that led to their downfall and their judgment. But he even says they were evil, the sort of uh, really heap up terms to describe the nature of their activity. It was, it was evil. And then what he does is he shows you from a whole series of texts the evil of what they did. And, and the first evil thing they did, and we already went through these, we don't have to spend a lot of time in here, but we do want to just sort of fill in the backdrop so we're understanding how Paul is using these examples. But the first example is, is tucked within the language of verse 6. And what it is is a reference to Numbers 11. We talked about this uh, last week, how the Israelites were in the wilderness. They hadn't been there very long, but they'd gotten tired of eating manna. And we're uh, given a description of manna in the Old Testament. It was like uh, uh, white bread with honey, something like that. And what they uh, basically said in Numbers 11 is, while living in Egypt, 
was a lot like being able to go to hometown buffet. Uh, they had garlic, and they had onions, and they had leeks, and they had a variety of foods and meats, and there was, uh, there was a variety to their diet. Their, their food was spicy. It tasted good. It was interesting. And now, as they've been wandering through this wilderness, uh, in hopes of, of going into the promised land and being the people of God and serving God in the promised land, what they've been doing is wandering around this wilderness and eating nothing but um, honey bread. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you can imagine that they did what they could uh, to, to spice it up in the best of their ability to change it up. And maybe sometimes they made it something like cereal for breakfast. And, and maybe sometimes they added whatever was around them in the surrounding areas to sort of make it a little bit different to the taste. But basically what they're saying here is they can't get over the fact that all their meals taste the same. And so they begin to complain to God that they want meat. And so God says, okay, I'll give you meat. And he causes this powerful wind to sweep this huge covey of quail uh, into the camp of Israel. And we're told that when they went out to get it, they had uh, abundance of meat. They grilled it up on the barbecue and they took a bite. And as soon as everybody took that first bite, God struck them with a plague. See, here the first illustration of, of craving for evil things, here the apostle said, is they craved for things that God did not give them. And we'll come back to this in a minute as we apply this passage, but it, you know, as you look at it on the surface of it, as you understand the stories of number 11, it really doesn't seem like an example of shocking sin. But they just wanted variety in their diet. That's all. But what they were saying when they complained against the Lord is they were saying that they were, they were disgruntled and discontent with His provisions. So what the Apostle Paul says, if that's you, if you are wrestling with that temptation, being disgruntled and discontent with the things that God has given you, you are craving evil. If you crave something God didn't give you. That's the admonition. Verse 7, we have a different admonition. Here it is the admonition not to participate in false worship. This is Exodus 32. This is Israel at the bottom of Mount Sinai. This is when Moses went up on the hill and he was gone for so long that the people finally said, what happened to this Moses guy? He leads us out into the wilderness, into the desert, and yet he disappears on us. And we're all sitting here before this mountain in the middle of nowhere. What are we going to do? And so they did the natural thing that anybody would do when they're camped out in the middle of nowhere and their leader has departed. They ask another leader to make an idol for them. And, of course, that was Aaron. And Aaron did the sensible thing when there was a mob full of people who were threatening to react with violence. He said, sure, take off your golden earrings and we'll make it into an idol. So he shaped it into a golden calf. You remember that. And then we're told here, in a summary fashion, what Israel did. They, they sat down to eat and drink. They stood up to play. Well, what the Word doesn't tell you is that golden calf was uh, symbolic and represented the form of the Egyptian god 
Apis, who was the bull god, who was a fertility god. And so uh, when we read this passage, they sat down to eat and drink. It means they had a feast. And so they stood up to play. They most likely engaged in a sexual orgy, which is a part of fertility worship. Now here's the thing that was so bad about it. It wasn't that they were worshipping Apis, the Egyptian fertility god. It's that they were worshipping God with false worship, which would have been used to worship that God. This is not a case of them forsaking the fact that Jehovah alone is God. This is Israel saying, we'll worship Jehovah as we see fit. And since we didn't see a form or shape when we looked at the Mount Sinai, instead we felt this, this terrible quaking and we sensed the holiness of God, what we're going to do is we're going to shrink God down to our size. We're going to make God visible. We're going to control our experience of God. And we're going to worship Him in a way that pleases us. You see, the evil of verse 7 of Exodus 32, of the example, the craving for evil, is that Israel worshipped the true God in a false way, and they worshipped the true God in the way that make them feel significant and close to God. Great danger in false worship. You see, Paul says, don't fall into the temptation here. This is, this is the, the negative part of their example. Don't fall into the temptation of worshiping God like you want to. We could put it another way. Don't put yourself in situations where you will be forced or tempted to worship the true God in a false way. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. You, you've gone to another church. You weren't here on a Sunday morning and you visited somewhere else and, and you begin to see them worshiping in ways that are not commanded in the Word. And you sit there and you say, well, I, I can do this and then maybe I shouldn't do that or maybe I could do that or probably shouldn't do that. You're not worshiping God, but what's happening now is you're being tempted to worship the true God in a false way. And what the Apostle Paul says to us, when we're in those situations, we have to remove ourselves from that. What Paul would say is it matters where you go to church. It matters how you worship God. Because if you don't, you are going to be ensnared, being tempted to crave for evil things. That is, you are going to be tempted to worship God in a false way. And Paul lays that out here as an example that has terrible consequences to us. Because we know that on that particular day, thousands of people died because of their false worship. There's a warning in the passage. Don't worship God in a false way and don't frequent places where God is worshipped in a false way. I'll come back to that in a moment. The next one here in verse 8 is an example of sexual immorality very clearly. It says, let us not act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. The references to Numbers 25.1 and sort of the dominant thread of that narrative that initiates it is that Israel had fallen into sexual sin through the uh, pagan temple prostitutes in Moab. And uh, for some reason, uh, the boys of Israel just could not say no. They just couldn't say no to the temptation. Turns out that through being sexually seduced, they ended up engaging in false worship and idolatry 
And 23,000 were killed on that day. The warning here is fairly obvious. Uh, The warning here is that you better be very careful with sexual impulses, both men and women, because, before you know it, they can sweep you into all kinds of other sins. One sin leads to another, in other words. And so the admonition that flows from this passage is very clear, that you're to keep your, uh, your unlawful sexual impulses in check. Otherwise, if you don't, you not only will end up committing... Adultery, you may end up committing idolatry or, or who knows what. It's a very profound warning that when people enter into sexual sin, they very often end up in all other kinds of sin. So Paul here admonishes and warns and he adds to it uh, the threat of judgment. This is what happened to Israel when they, when they fell in this way. 23,000 were brought under the judgment of God and died. Verse 9 is another example here. Uh, from Numbers 21.5, it said, Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Uh, one more of those episodes where Israel complains about divine provisions. And this particular episode of Numbers 21 is after the children of Israel have been uh, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the end of the wilderness sojourn. And uh, what they basically came to Moses and said was that their uh, life in the wilderness was an awful lot like watching the old TV uh, show Wagon Train. Uh, they just kept going from one place to the next and they never seemed to be in an end to the journey. Just one more experience of some isolated place in the middle of nowhere. And here, uh, what Israel did is kind of a common thing, is they came to God and they said, you know, we don't have a lot of food, we don't have a lot of water. And we're tired of camping. And what Paul said, what they did to amounted to testing God. Out of impatience, they lashed out and reacted to God, and they tested His patience to endure with them. Well, that didn't end well either. Paul said they were destroyed by serpents. Again, an admonition to be content with the things that God has given us, a theme that runs throughout Scripture. A very relevant and important thing to us who live in America, who, who, uh, who are used to fast food and microwave meals and instant messaging, and having it absolutely as much of everything as that we want, when we want it, as fast as we want it. Kind of a common problem that we have. And if we don't get it, we get outraged, so we get impatient, and we look around, and we, thought we, we will easily find ten other people around us who have exactly what we want, and we'll be moved to discontentment. Very common sin in a materialistic place in which we live. And Paul says, be careful... There's a warning against that. That is craving evil. If God did not give it to you, then you become impatient with His providences and provisions. You're craving evil. So there's four different kinds of examples of what it means to crave evil. And now in verse 10 we have the fifth. He says, Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Well, this is looking back to number 16. And you remember there that there were two different groups within Israel who rose up to challenge Moses' leadership. And uh, basically what they were saying, some of them were the tribe of Levi and some of them the tribe of Reuben. They basically said, hey, look, you're not the only one who's gifted around here. And we want a piece of the action. We either want self-rule or we want a part of your rule, but we're tired of only you ruling over us. And the thing about it was, was that it was so clear that Moses had been appointed by God to be Israel's ruler. All you got to do is go back to Exodus chapter 3 when God encounters uh, Moses there in the burning bush. He tells him to take his shoes off on the holy ground and he challenges Moses to, to hear the call to be the leader of Israel. And Moses uh, uh, bumbles and stutters and says he can't do it he can't speak straight and had all kinds of excuses for why he didn't want to be the leader. And God said, no, you're going to go be the leader of Israel. And so Moses finally accepts the call, goes down to Egypt, stands before Pharaoh, repeatedly tells them, let my people go. God's going to bring judgment upon you. Repeatedly Pharaoh says no Moses was used by God to bring all kinds of plagues against Egypt so Moses had repeatedly demonstrated his divine appointment and calling to be the leader of Israel not only there but when they go to the Red Sea their back is standing against the Red Sea the Egyptian armies are, are pursuing full head of steam towards Israel and he lifts up the staff that he had used to uh, do all the miracles in Egypt and all of a sudden God uses that to cause the Red Sea to depart and so the people who walk through on dry ground so Moses leads them through there they go to Mount Sinai and God says, tell everybody to clean up because I'm going to come down and meet them here on top of this mountain. I'm going to speak to them. And God comes down the mountain. Exodus chapter 20, the people hear God speak and guess what? They said, Moses, you go talk to God for us. You see, it was really clear that Moses was the divinely appointed leader. Yet in number 16, these people gather together against Moses And they fight his divine appointment to be their leader. Well, we're told that all those people with all their houses, with all their children, with all their stuff got swallowed up by the earth. The next day the people of God were so enraged by that that they started again to accuse Moses of getting rid of his competition and God sent a plague and 14,700 were killed on that day. Another admonition, don't crave evil things. And the evil thing here that Israel is admonished not to crave is to not accept the rulers who God has appointed to rule over you. This has a very contemporary application to us while we're uh, in the church age as well. It has a, a relevant application that the people of God are to submit and respect and to get along with and be at peace with those who God has raised up to rule within the church. We can't miss it as we search in the New Testament that Jesus Christ, when he ascended into heaven, he instituted and established uh, an order in his church. That there would be ministers to preach the word of God. There would be elders to rule over God's people. There would be deacons to serve people in their needs. But there is a polity. There is a structure. There is an order. There is an arrangement within the church. And God repeatedly admonishes the people of God to submit to those who have the rule. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 says, You esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. 
Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. All because of those very clear admonitions from the Bible, the Belgic Confession says, everyone ought to esteem the ministers of God's word and the elders of the church very highly for their work's sake. And be at peace, without murmuring, without strife, or without contention. The admonition of this rebellious spirit and attitude applies to us under the New Covenant. There is a temptation for those who are under the authority and rule of others to grumble and to complain and to attempt to usurp the authority that has been placed within the hands of the rulers of Christ's church. Paul says if you have that attitude or that spirit within you, he says that's an evil craving. And he warns us against that with the consequence of divine judgment for those who refuse to submit to those who have the rule within the church. So the first admonition here is to not crave evil things as they crave. The second admonition in verse 12 is is pretty simple and it's fairly short. It says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Therefore, the very important word at the beginning there, verse 12, says, In view of everything that I've just said here, as, I, as I've walked you through five examples of craving for evil things, the very word that Paul uses, a different word than he normally does when he uses therefore, it's saying, I want you to take and think about this. You look at all of those examples and you're to draw from those examples an admonition. The admonition that the Apostle Paul says that flows from thinking upon those examples of craving for evil things and the dire consequences that came upon those people who engaged in those sins is Paul says, you take heed lest you fall. Paul says this morning, as you're thinking your way through these verses and the illustration of sin and failing to depart from the various temptations that are listed there, he says, you take heed, you think about those things, and you apply them to yourself. He said, oh, by the way, don't think that you don't have to because you're too spiritually advanced. He says, let him who thinks he stands. Remember, people of God, those, the, the parallel here uh, works because they had partaken of the sacraments and the grace of Christ. Just like you. And Paul says if it could happen to them, if, if they could think that they stand because they participated in the great redemptive historical events and they participated in Jesus Christ and they've observed all of these miracles and they thought that they could stand. Look at them. Look at the bodies that litter the wilderness. Paul says, take heed. Think about the admonitions that flow from those examples. Take heed. Think about them. These were people who knew better. These are people who knew the Word of God. So take heed lest you fall. 
What do you mean fall? Well, it can either mean fall away from salvation, like they made it very clear, those people who died in the wilderness indicated by their life that they weren't saved. They had a partial experience of partaking of Christ and His grace, but they indicate by their life that they were not actually saved. But I think the force of the admonition is this. Take heed. Listen to the examples of falling into temptation. Take heed. Don't fall into temptation. That is what he's saying. You say, what's the big deal about falling into temptation? It happens all the time. Well, the big deal of falling into temptation is that you never know what's going to happen when you fall into temptation. You don't know how your soul is going to be damaged. You don't know what kind of spiritual consequences it's going to have for you. You don't know what kind of sins you might, uh, that you might go into one after the other because your inhibitions are down, your conscience is seared. Who knows what will happen? I don't. You find this happen plenty of times within the church. People fall and they don't stop. It's almost like they're a snowball rolling down the hill. It gets bigger and more involved and more confused and more complex and more damaging the further it rolls. And Paul says, I've given you all of these illustrations as motivations to you from various angles. Don't fall. You don't have to fall. He's saying, take heed. Take heed. Very powerful admonition that Paul gives to the church here. Before we move on to the second point, I want to apply three points that flow out of all of this. And the first thing that I want to apply here this morning is that you need to understand temptation according to what God in His Word says temptation is. I bring that up because of this. I, I, I thought about it and I said, you know, outside of the very obvious incidents here of sexual immorality... I think that nearly all of these examples would not make our top ten list of temptations. I think that most of the temptations that Paul isolates here and calls craving after evil things would not be on our radar of temptations. Think about it. His uh, warning and admonition not to fall into false worship. It is all around us. Mind you, Paul is not talking about going and engaging in false worship with false religion. He's saying in the name of Christ, beware of engaging in false worship. And and you see, false worship is everywhere around us. It's openly permitted within the church. You see, this admonition, this temptation, I think doesn't even register with us on our radar screen because false worship is everywhere. It's so prevalent. Almost anything is tolerated in the worship of God today in Protestant churches. And it's become so prevalent and so widespread... You're not allowed to criticize it because if you do, you are immediately accused of being traditionalist, overly conservative, hypersensitive, and just completely out of touch. Well, I want you to go back and notice that this is placed under the category of things that the Apostle Paul says are craving after evil things. It's it's no big deal. We just went and visited another church. We just engaged in a little false worship. What's what's the problem? Everybody else is doing it. 
Paul lists that right next to the danger spiritually of sexual immorality. Complaining against God. So many other things. I want us to understand and evaluate what temptation is according to the Word of God. Another one that may not stand out to us is is a profound spiritual problem and a craving after evil things is is what we looked at in verse 6 and what we uh, looked at here in in verse 9. That they were just discontent with God's provisions. They just wanted something else besides manna. They wanted something different besides oatmeal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day for years. Surely that doesn't sound unreasonable, does it? That does not sound unreasonable, does it? It couldn't. We all eat different food almost every single meal. Every single day. But Paul says it was a craving after evil things and it was a craving after evil things because it was a craving for what God had not provided. And if you long for things that God did not give you, Paul says you're craving after evil. Surely this is a major problem in a materialistic society such as ours. Paul says that is a temptation that we must fight. He says it's a craving after evil. The other one complaining against authority here. I mean, isn't uh, our American ideology rugged individualism? Isn't that the prevailing mindset that we're all individuals? We're all autonomous. We all have the right to self-rule. We, 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 don't have, we don't want the institutions to rule over us. The man can't hold us down. Isn't that the prevailing ideology in our entire culture? Well, Paul says you better be very careful with that. Because God actually does appoint certain people to rule over you. And if you challenge their authority... You are craving evil things. If you challenge the authority of your parents, you are craving evil things. If you challenge the authority of political rulers who lawfully have their office, you are craving evil things. If you challenge the rule of the elders and pastors who God puts over you as your spiritual overseers, and when they are ruling in a way that's biblical and according to God's Word, you challenge that, you are craving evil. I just wanted to go over that for a second because I think it's so important that we read these temptations accurately and we define temptation according to God and His Word and not the more scandalous things that we may think that interpret uh, temptation is. Paul spells out it's craving evil things to be discontent, to not put up with those respectfully, those who rule over you, engaging in false worship and so on. The other thing that I wanted to draw out of this passage for our, uh, for our application before we move on to the final point is this. What the Apostle Paul is doing here as he, uh, as he unfolds one example after the other and then concludes that with verse 12 and he says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. He calls upon you this morning in the face of temptation to resist. He calls upon you to actively resist. He calls upon you to say no. 
You see, the problem in all of these examples here from verse 6 through verse 10, it doesn't seem that those who were involved ever thought to say no. What Paul is saying here is when you're faced uh, with temptation standing before you, he says the obligation and the duty of the servant of God is to simply say no. Not just once and not just twice and not three times and not just four times, but you're to say no every single time. And the way I put that there says something that is surely significant about the nature of temptation. I'm sure you're aware of this, but you can say no to temptation once, and temptation will flee away from you. It will be just fine to recede into the backdrop and the woodwork. But that doesn't mean it's over. Because it'll come back. It'll come back when your guard's down. It'll come back when your senses aren't shut. It'll come back when you have a problem in your life and all of a sudden the temptation is a, is a pleasant distraction. Surely that must have been the case with these temptations. The duty of the Christian is to say no every time. Secondly, it's to do with it as Jesus did. Jesus exhorting his disciples before he was finally betrayed in Matthew 26 as they're in the garden admonished his disciples one last time. He said, keep watching and keep praying that you would not enter into temptation. Keep watching and keep praying that you would not enter temptation. How do you deal with temptation? Well, the Apostle Paul would tell you, you do it just like Jesus admonished you. Keep watching and you keep praying. You need to think about the temptations that are before you on a daily basis and you need to keep watching and keep praying and keep praying specifically that God would give you the grace to say no every single time that one comes up. The particular temptation... Not simply, Lord, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. But, Lord, deliver me from this temptation that I have. See, that's the thing that you have to pray. It's not the same for everybody. One person struggles with materialism. They struggle with taking the credit card out and maxing it out, buying absolutely everything their heart desires. But they have absolutely no problem with having an urge to run off and to engage in false worship. On the other hand, there's a person who longs and craves after a tangible experience of God and is willing to get it in almost any way they can think of because they, they think they desperately need this tangible connection and experience, but they don't struggle at all with materialism. The other person has a non-stop struggle with sexual impulses and managing them, but doesn't ever think about usurping the authority of the elders. You think about that. Everybody has unique temptations and struggles and trials. And what the Apostle Paul would say to you, I've shown you a whole array of temptations. The thing that you are supposed to do is you are to struggle. You are to fight them. You are to pray against them. So Paul warns us. Admonishes us. But the other thing he does, and finally and briefly is he encourages us. Verse 13. He says this, very, very important. 
No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able with. The temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. That is a Bible verse that every Christian ought to have memorized. There is nothing more encouraging to know that when we stand in this life, which is a life full of temptations, a life full of trials, a life full of struggles and difficulties, the most important thing you can know, the Apostle Paul says, is that God is faithful. God is faithful. He keeps His covenant to a thousand generations. In His faithfulness, He calls us into fellowship with Jesus Christ. If we are faithless, He abides faithful. He can't deny Himself. He is faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and true. He is faithful who calls you, who will do it. The Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You can search Scripture and you will find it uh, conjoined with many different concepts and ideas. But here the Apostle Paul says, The Lord is faithful and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Here is encouragement after a whole series of examples and admonition of people who craved after evil things and they all ended up dead. Paul says to you, In a note of encouragement, God is faithful. It doesn't mean that you run out and you plunge yourself in the midst of trial and temptation and say, well, God's faithful. He won't allow it to go further than I can handle. He says this to the weak person, the person who knows their, their weakness, their proneness to wander, the sinfulness of their heart, the power of their temptations. What Paul says to you is God is faithful. Won't allow you to go beyond what you're able to bear. But then he says this, and it's rich. He says, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. It's, it's, a, it's a rich word, Leon Morris says. He says, it's kind of like having your back against the wall and into the corner. There seems to be no way out. And mysteriously, there's a door of escape. That's what God does. With every temptation, that's the way it is in the original. With the temptation, God constructs a special way out. (coughs) He doesn't tell us what it is, but a little insight may come from 2 Thessalonians 3.3, where the Apostle Paul says, The Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you. Strengthen there means to make firm and unchanging in belief. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, in the moment of temptation, God provides the way out. And perhaps one of the ways that God opens that door to the way out of the situation is that God strengthens. He makes firm in belief and attitude. And so it just may be, as you stand before the face of temptation, that some sort of unexpected resolve fills your heart. Some sharpened sense of awareness of the danger of the temptation. Maybe some overwhelming sense of the fear of God. Or maybe in the way Joseph had it, some overwhelming sense of the grace and the love of God for him so that he was led to say, how can I do this thing against my God? How can I do this thing against my God who loves me, who gave His Son for me, who has redeemed me, who has made me His child, who has given me eternal life? How can I do this? Maybe it's that. Well, Paul says, for your encouragement this morning, that God is faithful. 
God is faithful and He will provide a way of escape. So as we face our temptations this morning, as we struggle with what seems to be overwhelming, we should just be honest about it. This world's temptations, its attractions, its promises, the combination of our sinful hearts and the ability of temptation to press the exact button to break our inhibitions right where we are weak. To those kind of sinful, weak, struggling people. We have this enormous, wonderful word of encouragement. God is faithful. And what Paul would have us do is run to that God who is faithful. That God who never slumbers or sleeps. That God who has vowed to protect us from all evil. That God who promises to keep your soul. That God who constantly guards your coming out and going in from now and forevermore. Let me turn to that God. The one who's able to keep us from stumbling. As we approach our trials and temptations, may God help us to take heed to the admonitions and to stand firm in the faithfulness and strength of God. Let's pray.